This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Clint Emerson. So he is a retired Navy SEAL. He spent 20 years in service to the United States of America overall, and he is the only SEAL ever inducted into the International Spy Museum. So that'll give you a little hint as to what he did after he retired from the Navy. But he continues to serve by empowering good people with safety and security skills at home, work, and abroad. And his services has have helped Fortune 500 companies and politicians and celebrities. And we, we get into all that in the show. But also, he is a New York Times bestselling author of several books, to include 100 Deadly Skills. That's actually an entire series of books and his memoir, The Right Kind of Crazy. But he has a new book out called The Rugged Life, The Modern Guide to Self-Reliance. And so we talk about that quite a bit in this episode. But the one thing about this episode that I felt like was really, really important for uh, for him and also for the audience is he gets asked the same like 10 questions in most of his interviews, okay? So he gets asked about, you know, why did he want to go into the military? Why did he choose the Navy SEALs? And man, was it terrible being cold, wet, and sandy on the beach in Coronado 20-something years ago? And oh gosh, what was it like when you became a spy? And oh gosh, what was it like when you decided to become an author? And oh, you know, about this book and that book. And the one thing that I wanted to do in this interview is not that. And so I asked some of those questions, but from the beginning, we talk about the situation in Uvalde because he's got a very, very unique perspective because he trains people in these scenarios. We talked about the situation in Ukraine. We talked about the situation in Afghanistan. We talk about, you know, the changing of standards in the military, how the military seems to be obsessed with wokeness now and not with lethality. We get into all that, but then we get into the books and we get into his military career and his spy career. But then even towards the end of the episode, we got into his faith because when I went on his podcast, it was actually really funny. He kept like giving ribbing me and giving me crap, like a oh, Bible thumper and all that. And like, I wasn't offended at all. I just thought it was funny. Right. So that, that kind of shows you like when you have that comfortability with somebody, you can kind of poke at their worldview and all that. And it's not this nefarious thing. It's just kind of like a funny thing thing right but towards the end i was very surprised uh, with his answers whenever i was asking him about his spiritual or religious worldview kind of how he came to that type of worldview and how that manifests in his life. So you're going to make sure you stick around till the end of the podcast. I will tell you to anyone out there listening with sensitive ears around mild language warning. So Clint just kind of talks how he talks. And again, I don't edit for content, but yes, mild language warning on this, but guys, it was a great interview. I had a lot of fun and I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Clint Emerson, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Finally. I know we finally made it happen. I mean, I came on your show like a year ago and I only got nine out of 10. You know, if you guys don't know about his podcast, he asks you all these, you know, crazy scenario based questions and you got to try to get them all right or you're an idiot. And so apparently I'm still an idiot. I only got nine out of 10, right? One of these days we'll see if we can correct that error. But as I was kind of talking with you off, off air, Clint, there's a lot of things that people want to talk about in, in terms of what you do with Violent Nomad and with your books and all that stuff. And don't worry, guys, we're going to get into that red meat here a little bit later on the show, but I do want to talk about some things that I think you can give us a unique perspective on because as a civilian, as someone that hasn't really had experience in some of these areas, I think you'll be able to shed some light in a little bit of a better way than just some random pundit on, you know, on Fox News or CNN or somebody on TikTok or something like that. The first thing I want to get into is the situation in Uvalde, Texas. And so by the time this podcast comes out, we will likely get even more information about the shooter, about the situation that happened, about the timeline, all of that. So we're only going to be speaking off of what we know to be true at this point. 
But from your perspective, having a long career in in military, also in preparedness training, in the stuff that you did for Uncle Sam that was not military related, which we'll get into a little bit later, you know a lot about situational awareness. You know a lot about active shooter situations. You know a lot about law a lot about law enforcement way more than me and most of the guys in our audience. So I guess just generically, what is your overall read of that situation, and then what you've seen kind of coming out of this on the back end? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, it it actually relates to my day job. So what most people may or may not know is I have a company called Escape the Wolf, and we do crisis management planning and preparedness for Fortune 500s, nonprofits, uh, you know, places of worship and in private schools mainly because public schools will not put the money into it. So, and that's, that's the first, first piece of the answer, right? Money. Mm -hmm. A lot of these school districts and superintendents uh, tend to put an emphasis on safety and security, but very rarely put the money towards it, which is really the the biggest issue. Um, On top of that, uh, every school needs its own individually based assessment so that it can then have customized policies, procedures, and best practices. You can't just say, hey, run, hide, fight, and just you know, throw it and stick it, and it applies to every school across the country. I mean, a lot of these schools are either a single standing building um, that's it's spread out by, you know, like my daughter's high school is literally a quarter mile if you walk it from end to end one building. Or you have the more campus style buildings where you've got, mm-hmm. you know, multiple buildings, multi-level spread out over, you know, serious acreage. So it really depends on the the facility in itself. And that's why it needs customized policy and procedures. Okay. So that's, that's the second piece. And that takes, once again, money, it takes experts to come in, look at it and then develop it. Um, and then the most important piece, training, 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 right? I mean, these teachers, across the board need it on a more regular basis than what they were getting. Um, You know, with Uvalde, I think the reports already come out that there was two different active shooter training pieces over two years. So that's, that's once a year, once a year is not enough to create um, good muscle memory, you know, being able to perform under stress when you have zero time, increased stress, are you going to make the right decisions? Uh, Probably not, not with the, one hour, one day of training or whatever it was they received uh, per year. And then uh, a check system that then supports that the procedures and the policy that you put together are actually being followed, right? So are all the doors closed once the bell ring? Is there Mm -hmm. one point of entry in and out? Does that point of entry have an auto locking mechanism that can only be unlocked from the receptionist desk? Is there a camera there where you have to present your driver's license and ensure that only one person, that person is coming in and they have good reason to be there? There is a lot of great procedures, generally speaking, that these schools can follow. But um, once again, complacency and mm-hmm. the reason you need a check system is to ensure complacency doesn't kick kick in. So, you know, we've already heard the reports that a door was left open uh, after the bell was uh, came off and, and a lot of other things that, you know, I'm not sitting in a right seat to be um, mm-hmm. judging it, but, you know, those complacency overall usually is our biggest enemy. 
when I think beyond that, I remember growing up in Oklahoma and once a year we would do a fire drill and once a year we would do a tornado drill, right? And we never had to put those things in, but those situations aren't as kinetic as an active shooter situation. So you would think that you would need more training as you were just kind of talking about in those areas. And I ran the math, Clint, on this uh, whenever I talked about it on my show about a week and a half after this went down, the $40 billion we sent to Ukraine. And before anyone starts screaming, yes, you can aid what's happening in Ukraine. We'll get to Ukraine in a second. And you can deal with, you know, school shooting and school safety here in America. But I ran the math. There's about 130,000. I think these numbers are correct. I'm just going off the top of my head. There's 130,000-ish K through 12 schools in America. That's private, public, the, the whole nine yards. If you divide 40 billion by 130,000, that would give each school, and again, that doesn't make sense because some schools are tiny, some schools are huge campuses, right? Each school yeah. would get 308 thousand dollars that they could put towards, you know, security systems towards, you know, uh, refurbing their school to have a single point of entry towards training, you know, uh, school resource officers, like towards whatever they wanted. Because again, we just like pulled $40 billion out of our rectums and just sent it over to Eastern Europe. Like it was nothing. Right. But we just keep hearing about how there's no money. There's no money to take care of these situations. So how do you feel about that? When you, when you constantly hear these people saying, you know, basically attacking the instrument of evil, which is this, in this case was a firearm, right? But they're, they don't want to actually talk about fortifying the schools in any way. Yeah, I think it's important to identify what is the usually the most common problem in security, and that is the human factor. Mm-hmm. The human factor. You can put up, the. I mean, on your networks, you can have the best firewalls in the world. You can have the best fence lines uh, in, your, in the more physical security world, but it's always going to be the human that screws it all up, leaving a door open or clicking on that link. That is it. 99% of the time, it is a human factor issue that ruins the best of security systems out there. So the money, yes, I agree, needs to be dumped into training, 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 and beating it into everyone at all levels um, within school districts so that it is taken seriously and becomes muscle memory. Let's face it, I always kind of relate this stuff to, you know, seatbelts. There was a time when we didn't have to wear them. And then when we did, everybody bucked and brawled and like, what the fuck, I don't want to do this. Um, But now you, you, you you put it on, you take it off 20 times a day, and you don't even remember doing it now. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why you kind of got it. You've got to get the teachers to that point as it relates to the best practices that they implement within their classroom, within the school hallways, you know, and then the lost man drill. Right. Like, hey, I've got a kid. When the attack happened, one of my students was in the bathroom. Okay, that's something you need to train. You need to have the answers for that. And the kids need to know it as well. And it's just unfortunate. It's unfortunate across the board that you've actually got to put all this effort towards something that's just so freaking violent and stupid, you know, yeah. but I agree. you got to take money and put it in the right place. And I would love it. This is what I'd love. I'd love a politician to come, come out and say, Hey, we're going to give you a Scantron, something simple, right? Scantrons. You're going to, we're going to send it to you in the mail. You're going to take your number two pencil. And on that Scantron is going to be all the categories in which tax money can go to. And you as an American can bubble in. Okay, I want my, my, I want my, I want Clint's tax money to go, yeah, defense, education, you know, really a domestic column and then a foreign column. Right. 
And my guess is most Americans would bubble in all the domestic stuff first. And if there was any money left over, then yeah, maybe you give some to the international side, uh, depending on what that is. But, you know, and, and, and for me, it would just be peace of mind. Even if they threw the damn scantrons in the fucking trash, I would, you know, fine, so be it. But at least I feel like I'm getting to choose where my money goes. It would be, that would be an overwhelming great feeling. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's where, you know, some piffy, you know, Dan Crenshaw was talking about this. He was talking about, hey guys, can't we help Ukraine and take care of the Southern border? Can't we help Ukraine and, you know, do the baby, uh, baby formula shortage? And I felt like he missed the point. The point was not that we don't don't want to do both that we don't want to support both but to the mom like my, my wife we have a three-month-old right now and luckily yeah. you know she's able like thank god she's able to breastfeed but what if she wasn't like because we had a friend this morning that literally came over to our house and got over 100 ounces of breast milk because she can't find the formula that she needs and she's waiting on it to get shipped over from europe and so it's the domestic concern versus the international concern because it's really really hard to care about the plight of ukrainians when we've got all the stuff going on here one thing i wanted to, to say on this before we move on to other subjects <clears throat> at, at my daycare that I have our, our kids in, which you don't need to know where my, my kids are because I don't want anybody to know where my kids are right now. But they, the, the week of the Uvalde shooting, I was I showed up to the school about a half hour early to pick them up because I need to go do something. I need to go ahead and grab them. And I walk up to the door that's supposed to be locked and I just opened it. It was completely unlocked. So I walk in, I'm just walking around for a little bit. Here's classrooms to my right, classrooms to my left. Anyway, so obviously it could have been an issue, you know, all that. I, I let the, the person that runs the school know. I say, hey, uh, I showed up today about 30 minutes early, unplanned. The door was unlocked. Can you please explain this to me? And can you please explain to me how you will ensure that this will not happen in the future? Obviously, considering what we just saw happen in South Texas. She's like, oh my gosh, we did the soccer thing today and we were in and out all day. And I guess it just got left open. No big deal. Well, yesterday, Clint, I go about it, you know, about 40 minutes early for the same reason to pick my kid up. And I'm like, surely this door is going to be locked. And I walk in, open the door, nothing. Now this time I decided to make a little bit of an experiment. I just walked around for a few minutes before I let anyone know I was there and I was concealed carrying at the time. And it's like, what if I wasn't a good guy? What if I was a bad guy? I had, I had time to barricade any other exits and do whatever I wanted to those children. So that's my encouragement. I'm sure you would echo this. Parents, check your kid's security yourself. Show up unannounced at their school. Show up unannounced at their daycare because that's my first question at any daycare we go to is the security protocol. But you're right. The locks are great when people lock the damn door. But yeah. if they don't lock the door, it doesn't matter. So I did just want to kind of throw that in there because yes, the human element is incredibly important and we need to put an emphasis on training. Now, I do want to go and talk about Ukraine a little bit, uh, Clint, because we've talked about that a lot here. You know, obviously it's a very kinetic situation. It's changing a lot. It's hard to know if the information we're getting is real because it could be propaganda from this side or that side. We all know that Ukraine's a deeply corrupt country. Some people think we're sending money over there just so we can launder it back here. But again, I'm not Alex Jones. I'm me, so I can't make that connection. But from your perspective, knowing what you know about protecting this homeland and all that, this overwhelming focus on what's happening in Ukraine, is there a direct linkage to protecting us here in this homeland? Do you think that we should be flying Ukrainian flags and supporting them in the way that we do? Because, you know, I, I tend to say, yes, we should be supporting them. But to the detriment of what else is kind of my question. What are your thoughts on what's happening over there? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you look at it from one angle. Yes, it's taxpayer dollars going and supporting, a, you know, another country's issues and cause. And we, we tend to do that, right? America's mm -hmm. always been the police of the world. And, 
you know, there was times even when I was serving, I'd find myself in a country doing something wazoo and crazy and going, why the hell am I doing this? But at the end of the day, there's usually a greater good to it. So the beauty of a proxy war, which is what we're in right now, right? right? We're using U.S. technology and military arsenal against the Russians is that this is a very rare opportunity to learn everything we need to know on how Russia responds, how Russia fights, Russia's technology, Russian armor, Russian uh, ordnance, right? We're collecting all that. Trust me. So proxy war gives you the playbook of an adversary that you're not fighting yet. And so that's why we do take advantage of these moments so that we can collect, 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 mm-hmm. and then apply that to creating new technologies, better TTPs, you know, and, and, and have a better strategic playbook if and when we do have to go toe-to-toe with Russia. And it's the only good reason to get ourselves into these types of um, scenarios is is so that we can then keep a tab in the pulse of our adversaries um, through these through these proxy wars. That's really the best answer I've got for you, and that's how I reason it, and I and and the only reason I would support it um, because it does give us this huge advantage in the future if we ever have to go head to head. Absolutely. And, and as of the recording of this podcast, it looks like, you know, the conflict over there might be turning in Russia's favor. We don't exactly know that. Of course, the entire international uh, community was is just absolutely shocked that they just didn't get ran over immediately. So it's it's an incredible thing that they've held out this long. But just one more quick question on this. And, and again, you're not like purporting to be some sort of like, you know, world policy expert or any of those types of things. But I am interested because we are seeing these reports and these ideas that Vladimir Putin might be ill. Um, and here we are. We've got kind of this currently failed military campaign. Generals are dying in the field, like they're losing tons of planes and tons of people and all that, but they do have a lot more to kind of wait this thing out. One of my concerns that I feel like no one is talking about is let's say Putin dies at some point in the next few months, maybe in the middle of this conflict, maybe after they have a little bit more success, the power vacuum that would be created in Russia by by a dictator dying, that's the thing that scares me a little bit more than the dictator being in power. I'm, I'm concerned about both, but I'm a little bit more concerned about the vacuum. Do you have any sense of what would happen if something were to happen to Vladimir Putin? I, I don't have anything specific, but it's a great point, and it's something that is always concerning. It was it was a concern when we went into Iraq, and you take down someone like Saddam. It, his two his two sons are far worse than he right. ever was, and so yeah. then it's like it's a domino effect of targets that you ultimately have to take out until you get to the until you get to a point where you can. Literally put in a government that you know will hopefully be more democratic than communist, and you know, and then hope for the best, like we've done a couple of times now. You know, so yeah. if Putin went down, which you know, at the strategic national level, you know, this stuff is already looked at. That playbook is already built, and they already know who's going to take his spot. They already know how they would deal with it. I mean, these are these are things that. You know, our intelligence agencies have, you know, most of the time a 50 year, sometimes a hundred year plan, right? DOD looks at things at six months. Okay, we want to drop the hammer and squash everything in a six month deployment. (laughs) Whereas your intelligence agencies tend to have this more long term strategic look, 50 to 100 years. 
which forces them to know the how many again they probably racked and stacked all of the leaders that would come up and potentially take Putin's place. So um, I do have faith in that those systems out there just from my own personal experience. You know, roaming those hallways at, at the different intelligence agencies. Excellent. So I'm glad to have that perspective, and it does give me a little bit of. Uh even though I do have this generalized distrust for people that purport to be experts and then they're seemingly shocked by the outcome of something, but I do appreciate that perspective. We should probably go ahead and back into talking about Afghanistan as well. So here we are about a year ago, the pullout from Afghanistan. I've heard a lot of different opinions uh, from people that have served in the military and, you know, you obviously served in the Middle East, you were a SEAL, you did some, uh, you know, very kinetic things for the government thereafter. Um, but obviously, as a civilian, it, I look at it as a tremendous failure, as a tremendous missed opportunity, as one of those opportunities to where, hey, we have thousands and thousands of troops stationed all over the place, all over the globe that are in an active war zone. And I think it would have been hard pressed for you to say that what was currently happening in Afghanistan at the time of our pullout was an active war zone where we were having tons of you know American soldiers lost on a regular basis. But as somebody that has served, as somebody that I'm assuming has lost men you know, in Afghanistan that spilled blood in Afghanistan. What are your overall thoughts on what happened there in terms of our pullout? But then now what we're seeing in terms of the, you know, impending humanitarian crisis there, not just with, you know, women and girls losing their rights, but just with a terrorist organization like the Taliban running an entire country in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's a complicated, you know, question, as you know, um, number one, what we learned from World War II and World War II, World War One and World War Two is that, you know, in order for democracy to really stick, you have to look at the, the generation that's not born yet, right? You need mm -hmm. a generation of kids to see, feel, and smell democracy the entire existence of their life by the time they hit adulthood. That's when you're just now starting to get democracy to stick, mm -hmm. right? Think about it in terms of like social media, right? We, we just now have, what is it? Generation X or Z or whatever the hell they call themselves yeah. is the first generation to actually be born into social media and mm -hmm. they're still, you know, that, that's all they know, right? They, they thought that it's existed forever for the most part. Right. So that's what you have to do to a certain degree if you want democracy to stick. And so pulling out early, um, yeah, I've got my reservations about that because going back to World War One, World War II, we have stayed in Europe. We are still in Europe and people don't like it, call, calling it an occupancy and it's, it was a different situation, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, we were able to get democracy to stick in certain variations depending on the countries in which we have bases. Plus, it also gives us that strategic capability, Right. Having airplanes, helicopters, and men in different areas of the globe is a good thing for America. Um, so, you know, strategy-wise, we probably should have stayed. Um, and then you, you, you sink that flag and you never pull it out of the ground. And you try to get democracy to stick, starting with that unborn generation, and then staying in for the long haul. Um, as far as the pullout, you know what? It, there wasn't going to be a good situation on that. You know, we knew two years prior that we were going to start rolling all of those forces out because it takes right. time. It's not something you do overnight. Hmm. Um, and so that's what was happening, right? We were pulling them out over a period of two years and we get towards the tail end 
And it wasn't until the tail end, the fucking media decides to start pointing cameras at it and giving it all this unnecessary attention. Um, and when you do that, anytime you the, the media concentrates on that one thing, then of course, right? Bad guys love cameras. We know that. So you put them out there, you give you, you give it a global uh, stage, then yeah, you're going to have a fucked up situation. It's not, at that time too, it's not going to matter if it was a Republican or a Democrat or whoever. If the media puts their cameras on something, then you're asking for trouble. And I think the thing that we're going to see, Clint, is we don't really know the ramifications of this, and we maybe won't know it for years. Same thing with Uvalde, same thing with Ukraine. Like, the body count in Uvalde is going to be more than 21. It became more than 21 within two days of this whenever one of the teacher's husbands had a heart attack, so the body count was at 22. But some of these kids, they literally watched their best friends get executed right next to them. Like, there was a grandfather that talked about, you know, his grandson who watched his best friend get executed, and the kid hadn't said a word for a week. He's completely in shock that he can't even verbalize anything whatsoever. And so I think we're going to see that as, as we get further away from that situation in Afghanistan. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking backward. But I think uh, that that entire area is going to be in a world of hurt. And I think that we're going to look back, you know, on the summer of 2021 and say that is when a lot of this nonsense started because, you know, we will have that hindsight. Um, I do also want to get your perspective, Clint, on kind of the changes that are happening within our United States military. So again, as a civilian, not being in the military, I'm only going by what I can see and what people in the military are telling me. So whenever I get a guy from the Air Force that's sending me an email about, hey, my my people are telling me that I have to put my pronouns in my my email bio. Like, what should I do? And they're, they're asking me, I'm like, I'm a radio show host. I'm a podcast host. Like, well, what the hell do you mean? Like, I can't answer that question for you. But kind of the wokeness, some of this, this Marxist ideology, the LGBTQ stuff, the the, the United States Marines posting that thing on, on to start, you know, pride month with, you know, instead of, you know, bullets on the helmet, they were like rainbow bullets. They look like rainbow crayons kind of playing yeah, into yeah. the whole societal thing, the lowering of standards for the military so that trans people can be included or so that women can be included in more, you know, spec ops, more the spec ops community, those types of things. Even though if those women go down range, it'll not only be horrible for them, it'll be horrible for everybody else. If anything were to go wrong. So I want to get your perspective because again, I didn't go through any of these trainings. I didn't go through any of these workups. I didn't go through any of these deployments. I have not seen the standards in action. I just know as an athlete, the fundamental and biological and physical differences between me and the opposite sex. And I also know that if I'm worried about my pronouns and my bio, I may not be worried about the bullet that has my name on it. So just take that wherever you want to go with it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, I'm just glad I retired when I did. Okay. That's number one. Um, the other piece to that is roughly, what is it, 6 to 7% of the entire armed forces, um, I think, are queer, gay, lesbian, whatever whatever name they give themselves. Um, that's a really small percentage to then make such a big deal out of it, mm-hmm. you know? And that's that's kind of where it's, I don't, that's where I have a problem with it, you know? It's, it's. There's, there's more people that ride motorcycles, for example, in the military than there are that give themselves a label of queer, lesbian, or gay. But yet we don't have a full-on national motorcycle day in the military. Um, and there's a lot of different, you know, lifestyles that military members choose uh, where you just, I don't think it's necessary to make a day or a big deal of it, or to feel like the, the, the political pressure or the cultural pressure 
to somehow include yourself into the pride stuff. I just, I think the military is the one place where they don't have to pick a side. The military is a non-political organization. It is, you do what you're told, you go do it, you do as best job you can, and then you wait for the next order. And that's the way it always has been. And I think as soon as you start to bend that piece, that throw in politics into the military, then you're going to find yourself uh, with a whole lot of other bigger issues later where people start to question decisions and orders. And, you know, that it's the military is not a democracy. You are told what you do. You volunteer to be told what to do. Um, And if you don't like that, then when your contract's up, you can leave. That's that's the other. There's always an exit. So, you know, I think that certain ranks within the military would be nice if they just held their ground and say, no, we're not doing this political horseshit just to satisfy, you know, a cultural you know, pressure. I just don't think it's necessary. I think the military should be able to, you know, just do what they're doing without political influence the way that it, the way that it's been going, it doesn't look like that's uh, the, the, you, as soon as you crack the seal, you know, the military is now going to be, you know, put into different positions now where they've got to make decisions that they just shouldn't have to make. When I remember even just five years ago thinking, okay, all this woke you know, nonsense and this leftward drift, it's never going to hit big corporate business. It's, you know, and it's never going to hit the military. And then here we are in 2022 and we're sitting in the middle of it, recording this during Pride Month. And it's just like everybody is trying to out pride one another and it becomes yeah. a social contagion. But also it's like as a civvy, I think the military should be obsessed with lethality. But here we are, we're obsessed with making sure we don't offend anybody. The military. Like the, the butt kicking element of the United States government is concerned about offending somebody by using the wrong pronouns. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. I hope cooler heads will prevail, but I don't exactly have a whole lot of, of hope that that is going to happen. But I do want to kind of go back and I appreciate you letting us kind of get into all those other different areas. We do need to kind of reverse back to the very beginning because every time I talk to somebody that served in the military, as someone myself that did not serve, that is kind of like a gaping hole that I see in my past. It's just not the way that my life, you know, went. It's not the way, you know, that God, you know, put out for me. But you decided that you wanted to go towards military service. You decided to go towards the Navy and you decided to go toward the SEALs. So in a nutshell, what kind of sent you in that direction? Uh, it's kind of multi-pronged. I, the, I grew up in Saudi, right? Most extreme religious place you could ever grow up. And I was there from the second grade all the way to high school. So um, going back to when you talk about the kids of Uvalde and where it's yet to see how this will affect them, mm-hmm. um, it, it, that, 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 what you said applies directly to me. As a kid growing up in Saudi and being treated like crap by... Saudis, I grew up saying, Hey, I want to come back and kill these motherfuckers someday. And I, and I'm an American. And remember that's the child in me that was talking, right? Sure. So, and, and a child that has opportunity, right? You can grow up to be a lawyer, a doctor, I can, you know, in America, you can do whatever you want. Um, but yet that just, that childhood kept me on a path you know, and that path led to joining the military. And of course I had influences along the way where I met a, I met a a guy in the Frankfurt airport, you know, Saudi doesn't allow anything owned by Jews, invented by Jews, you know, Mm -hmm. into their country. So Coca-Cola happens to be one of those products that was not allowed into Saudi for quite some time. And so anytime we get out of Saudi, the first thing I do is i you know, 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year old Clint wanted a fucking Coke, you know what I mean? And so I would go, 
went to the bar at Frankfurt Airport, order a Coke. There's a guy sitting there. He's got tattoos. He looks cool. I asked him what he, you know, I was a curious kid. I asked him, you know, what he did. And long story short, I finally get out of him that he was a SEAL and he tells me some cool stories. Um, and that, that definitely helped light the fire. Like, oh, I want to do what that guy does, right? Um, and then back then, that's the 80s. You know, there was nothing mm -hmm. about SEALs in the 80s, much less in the 90s when I joined. So um, it was a leap of faith, and uh, I just had a passion for it. And I tell people all the time, whatever it is you choose to do in life, make sure you're passionate about it um, because there will be – you know, obstacles and failures and letdowns along the way. And it's the passion that allows you to just pursue and keep chasing it and, and win, you know, and if you're not passionate about it, then all of those things that get in your way will definitely defeat you. Um, so anyway, I, uh, ended up in, uh, Bud's class 203, you know, went through the, you know, cold, wet and sandy thing that we're going to be talking about like every other seal. And, uh, you know, you get through the misery with some buddies, you make great friends, you end up, I end up at SEAL Team 3, um, which focused solely on the Middle East. So there you go. My childhood dream, like, you know, hey, look at what happened. <laughs> so, you know, and then the grown up version of Clint goes back to these different cultures and you realize culture is culture, you know, and uh, as long as they're not trying to sell their culture to us over here, then I'm good to go. You know, Saudi can do whatever the hell they want, just like any other country can. Um, but don't think for a second that I'm going to abide by any of its influences right here in America. You know, so I've run into some folks, you know, from here in Texas, from that side of the world. And I've got a short fuse with those fuckers, you know, I'm like, nope, I'm not putting up with this shit. You think you're going to cut in front of me in line or do anything? I'm the first guy that's going to tell you to go to the back, <laughs> you know, because they think, you know, they have this certain cultural uh, hierarchy, uh, especially Saudi men. They think they're at the top of the food chain. And I'm one of those that sets them straight every time I, I have an opportunity. So there you go. I, uh, from childhood, to the SEAL teams, you know, but key takeaway here is those kids in Uvalde definitely have had a very impressionable moment in their life. Mm -hmm. And it can take them the legal way or the not so legal way in life. I chose to go the legal way of, uh, you know, following through that childhood statement. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I've actually. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I actually have talked to several people that were kind of in similar positions to you, whether they were in the spec ops community, you know, dev group or, or different things like that. And it's like, you know, if I didn't do this, I would just be a, probably a really good criminal, <laughs> you know, or I would be in prison or dead because you kind of have that bend. And so you have to kind of filter it. But I do want to say something about the, you talked about passion. So I constantly get asked by people, it was like, how do you remain so passionate about fill in the blank? Or how do you remain so, you know, motivated about exercise or something like that? I was like, it's because I'm not passionate or motivated. I'm disciplined. And so I'm sure you would come sign that statement to where it's like that passion has to lead to something because you know a lot of people because i know a lot of people that are really really passionate and their energy is directed nowhere in particular right it's only whenever they get that disciplined approach because i'm not pa i was not passionate about going and working out in my garage when it's 100 degrees in Oklahoma this morning. But it was required of me because of discipline. Same thing with these these kids that we just talked about is having a disciplined approach to how they're going to build a life around their decisions makes it very, very important. So I, I did want to kind of throw that in there as well. And so for you, apparently, 
you didn't get enough of serving Uncle Sam whenever you were in the SEALs. You decided that you still wanted to do some kinetic work, I guess you could say, but you were going to be doing it on behalf of Uncle Sam, but just outside of the SEAL teams. And so talk a little bit about after you left the SEAL teams, kind of what you were doing in to still serve the United States of America. Yeah, I, I you know, as it says in the bio, <laughs> I stay within the uh, classified parameters or unclassified parameters of, uh, um, you know, so I, I had the opportunity while I was in to get really good at what you call CMOE, which is clandestine methods of entry, you know, sneaking into, you know, targets. And that can be, you know, vehicles, vessels, containers, structures, you name it. So you get a very in-depth knowledge of locks and alarms and all that kind of thing. And, uh you know, you need, and I, I built a little bit of a reputation around that in a very small group, you know, and um, had a lot of, you know, successes. And then uh, anyway, that that allowed me to then when I retired out of the Navy to continue that line of work for different agencies um, that, you know, required it. And, uh, um, you know, and I did that for a while and uh, now I kind of let most of that stuff go and concentrate uh, mainly on the things I have going. And as you know, you know, if you, if you wear too many hats, then you're really not good at anything. So right. I'm one of those that has to, I'll say yes to everything, you know, like a hooker. And then I have to kind of go, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not, I need to, I need to, you know, focus on this, this, and this, you know, that's about that, that maxes me out because as soon as you, obviously put too many things on your plate, things start to fall off and then you're not good at anything at all. So, um, and, and I felt like, Hey, I've done 20 plus years, you know, providing to my, uh, to the government and for the greater good of America. And, uh, and my daughter definitely became the number one, um, number one priority in my life. And, uh, and it's been that way for quite some time now. And, you know, you bring up discipline. One of the things I've been talking about lately especially as we approach Father's Day, um, you know, discipline is the number one trait, skill, characteristic you should give your kids. And it starts with saying no. Um, and you should say no until they can say no to themselves. And once they start saying no to themselves, then you have just achieved self-discipline with your children. And that is the best thing you can give them because that is the one tool that will drive them to fucking success no matter what they pick in life is self-discipline and the ability to say no to themselves is so important. And unfortunately, you got a lot of parents that uh, just aren't parenting these days. So there you go. Well, because they're so concerned about being their kid's friend, they want their kid to like them and all that. And I grew up with a couple of parents that couldn't have given less of a care about whether or not I thought they were my friend. There was a disciplined approach to what we were doing. And we knew that we knew the score, we knew the consequences and we knew the expectations. People think this is extreme when I tell them this, but if I came home with B's on my report card in a class where I was capable of an A, I was grounded. Right. There, there was no if, ands, or buts. There was no, oh, let's celebrate the five A's you got and not the B. The only B I never got in trouble for was AP chemistry because I escaped with a B in that class. My parents knew it, so they let me slide on it, right? But it's just knowing the score and knowing the ramifications, that really helps as we kind of kind of move forward. Um, you know what? I, I want to actually ask you about that because you say you have a daughter, you don't have a son? No. Okay. But, but I'm, I'm sure that you could still speak to this because you were a son at one point, you know, a lot of people that have sons. Um, in our culture, we do not usher young men into manhood. 
anymore. Now, there are small religious sects here or there that will do that, but we don't tell our young men, hey, you are a man now because of this reason, this reason, and this reason. Here are the things in your personality that I think are going to be great about you. Here's also the things that I think that you're going to struggle with. Also, here are the expectations on who you are to be in this community now. We don't do it. But now that I have two sons, I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old, I'm obsessed with rites of passage. I'm obsessed with my boys knowing that they can be a man if they do these things. They will be expected to be able to do these things as they move forward, which I think dovetails into your books, which we'll talk about here more here in a second. But for me, I'm so obsessed with that concept because if they don't know, they will self-actualize. They will self-identify as a man after they buy their first vehicle or have sex for the first time, or move away from home, or fill in the blank. They will figure it out for themselves. So what's your overall thought process on that? Again, I know you're, you're a father of a daughter, and it's, a, it's slightly different, but for fathers with sons about how we can usher them in to a greater understanding of what is expected to be a modern man. Yeah, I, no, I'm, you're right. I have a daughter, um, but I did raise my little brother. We're 11 years apart, and um, so my dad passed away early on, way too early, and so I, I ended up carrying the torch for him while I was, you know, in the SEAL teams. And uh, and so raising my brother, I, I, I had a lot of lessons learned there because I was, you know, still a kid as well. Right. I'm in my 20s um, raising, you know, uh, a high school kid basically is what, you know, what it boiled down to. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, for me, I had to, you know frankly, I had to kick his ass a whole bunch of times, you know, in order for him to see the light. And now, you know, he too works for the government and does great things. Uh, and, but if it wasn't for kicking, literally kicking his ass so that he would be more disciplined in life, um, you know, he could have gone down the wrong path a hundred different times. And I feel like, you know, he saw what I was doing in the military. And as he grew up and got older, he started to then really understand the value of discipline and the other things we've been talking about, and then started putting himself through different rites of passage. So he became an ultra runner. I mean, this kid was running mm -hmm. hundred mile plus races on a regular basis, you know, and, and, and starting and finishing and, he started, you know, and then of course college, right? I mean, he went to school, he got his degree, you know, from, um, uh, from George Washington university there in DC. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to pull off different things, but if it probably hadn't been for a little bit of the ass whoopings and then me staying on his ass and then just letting him observe, you know, my life, then who knows. Right. And I think, you know, every boy needs that. Every boy needs their dad. Mm -hmm. Every boy needs discipline, you know, and every boy needs their energy to be directed in the right direction. I think that's an important point. And whether you set out to do this or not, I think your, your career as an author has really helped this in a lot of ways. So after you left the military and after you left service to the United States, uh, you did what no other Navy SEAL has done in the history of history. And that is you wrote a book and became a best-selling author. So the first book, at least that I know of, is 100 Deadly Skills. This is an amazing, fantastic book. And that went into you know the survival edition, which I have right here. But there's a puzzle edition. There's an activity book. There's a combat edition, which I don't have. I need to fix that. But then you had your, your memoir, The Right Kind of Crazy and all that. But then we have your new book, which I'll get to here in just a second. And so it's interesting that you decided to kind of go that route. 
I was talking to a guy here recently. So he has a, a Christian organization that, you know, aids fathers and sons as they develop their relationships and helps kind of usher young men into manhood. And he asked me, cause he knew you were coming on my show. I was like, which of these books do you think, you know, would be appropriate for our kids? And I was like, well, the hundred deadly skills one, probably not best for seven, eight, nine year old boys, but the survival edition, I said, absolutely buy this book and apply that. Because one thing that a lot of these young boys aren't learning how to do is just about everything that's in this book, right? Everything that's in all these books, because, well, I guess here's my first question on these books. So I'm calling you out here. There's so much stuff in all these books, so much stuff to know. Like, do you know how to do all these things? Like, I'm just going to flip to a random page. All right. Uh, number 67, uh, make an improvised explosive device. Keep going. Uh, number 84, discreetly clear a flooded scuba mask. Like, do you know how to do all this? This seems insane. <laughs> um, you know, believe it or not, in the first couple of books, yeah, because I was digging into personal experience um, as a military guy. As a little bit of being a SEAL, but there's really not a skills in there that relate directly to being a Navy SEAL. You know, everybody thinks that, but that's just not the case. Um, you know, I grew up, um, when I got back from Saudi, I, I landed in the United States. One, uh, I'd been doing, I was an avid Boy Scout over in, over in the Middle East. It was like the only thing to do along with scuba diving. And then I had a fascination for magic, Right. And so when I got back to the States, I continued my scuba quals. I continued the Boy Scouts. And then I started, that was when I started my first company doing 20 minutes of magic for 50 bucks. I'd wear a black polo shirt, jeans, and I had my little suitcase of sleight of hand tricks. Mm -hmm. And I was booked all fucking weekend, right? In Plano, Texas. And, uh, and so between what, what people don't get is a lot of times magic really holds so much value in in how to distract and then do something right in front of somebody's face uh, without them ever seeing it. And you apply a lot of that historical stuff into those books in different forms or fashion, you know. So um, and also, you know, learning from criminal. There's a lot of criminal tricks in these books. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I, fe I feel it's very important for people to know what do the bad guys do, because once you know their tactics, then you've then their tactics become useless, right? So depending on the book, depending on the skills, most of that stuff, um, I either learned it at some point, was familiar with it, or I heard about it. I went and researched it. You know, obviously make it digestible, put the illustrations and make it easy for people to get up off the couch and go do it, which is really the goal. And, you know, I hate the fact that, yeah, Navy SEALs have written a lot of books, but for me, it's not, it's not about the book as much as it is giving you skills, right? I just, it just happens to be a very uh, successful way to deliver the information. It happens to be in the form of a book. And then also, you know, the different videos I've done for like 5.11 and stuff like that, that you see out there. Mm -hmm. But yes, skills, 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 because I feel like that's just one of those things uh, that a lot of kids just aren't doing anymore, right? They're paying so much attention to those thumb and finger skills on their phone, right. but they're really not getting outside and doing enough. And unfortunately, I mentioned the Boy Scouts. It too has been crushed by politics. You know, it's not Boy right. Scouts anymore. It's scouting and it's nothing against females because yeah, include them, but I don't think you need to change the dynamics and the curriculum and all that to, 
somehow make everyone on this planet happy because that's not what scouting was developed for. People don't realize that the Boy Scouts started in England and was started by a spy so that we would give our boys basic soldiering skills before manhood and so that they would have that experience and that foundation early in life so that they could potentially be better defenders of the homeland in case mm-hmm. there was another Nazi, you know, Hitler out there. But, um, and he also happened to be a cross-dresser, by the way, the guy who founded the scouting. So <laughs> some people go. wonder, was it because he, he didn't know where he stood sexually or was it because he had this extreme fascination with disguise? Who knows, right? Um, but regardless, we've lost the skills and I feel like it's my duty to get them out there in a creative way. Sometimes I throw taboo stuff out there because unfortunately that's what the media you know, locks their little talons into. Um, so when you put how to bury a body or a rectal, uh, the rectal concealment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should kids know about that? I don't know. That's up to the parents. But, uh, you know, when the Wall Street Journal wanted to write an article about the book, guess what they concentrated on? It was the taboo, <laughs> right? And uh, so that part sometimes is tactical in nature so that the book gets the attention it deserves. Sometimes you got to go out and put some extreme stuff in order in order to to attract that kind of stuff. One, I, I like that you're paying it forward with the skills that you've learned. That you, the U.S. taxpayer basically funded uh, your ability to learn those things. Because I love the books that are, and there I was, and then they talk about the mission. I love those books. I think they're wildly entertaining. But if I can't take them and apply them to my life, then they're just entertaining. They're just mental masturbation. It's just fun, right? But yeah. if I actually have the tangible skills, that's great. And uh, another thing, and, and by the way, the name of that organization is called Sand to Stone. That's the organization where they're kind of taking these kids out on these you know, hiking and camping trips and all those different things. And I, I think you, you kind of hit a new level because the, the, the skills books are incredible, but your brand new book is called the rugged life, the modern guide to self-reliance. And so right from the intro, you kind of give us an idea as to kind of what you're doing this for. And you say this, I'm moving beyond survival to how to thrive over the long term for months, years, even a lifetime by being self-reliant. And that starts with learning how to be a modern homesteader. Okay. So the sections of this book, because this is incredibly practical stuff for people like, you know, Santa Stone trying to, you know, create these skills for boys, uh, you know, for, you know, families that are wanting to do stuff like this or trying to be, you know, the next Bill Rapier or something like that and kind of live out in nowhere, middle of nowhere, Idaho and kind of do their thing out there. But the sections of the book are be your own builder, be your own power grid, be your own farmer, be your own butcher, be your own hunter, be your own homemaker, be your own protector, be your own RTO, that's radio telephone operator, be your own first responder and be your own handyman. And I just got to tell you, this is just like the skills books in that it's very visually appealing. It's very easy to read. But just like this, I've never felt less talented, Clint, than reading your books. I'm like, I don't know how to do anything. It's a miracle I can tie my shoes in the morning. But uh, it's just such an incredible resource for people because don't just read it like a novel where you just go from page one till the very end and, you know, just go along for the ride. This is a good reference guide. I feel like this is a good thing to kind of, you know, kind of dog ear the page and come back later. So tell me about the shift you kind of made from the skills books, did a little, you know, memoir and then ended up with the rugged life. Yeah, it was pretty easy because I truly believe in being uh, a consistent, constant student and always learning. Right. Um, So that is the beauty of this post-military career that I've picked is I said to myself, I just want to continue learning. 
So for combat addition, combat addition, I went around, traveled the United States during the pandemic. The highways were empty. It was awesome. <laughs> and I yeah. and I went and visited, you know, 15, 16 badasses in their own vertical of knowledge and then took the skills that they gave me and put them into combat addition so that the average person can, one, have a catalog of great American dudes that teach really awesome stuff, right? So if you're looking just for a catalog of instructional courses, uh, that's combat edition. On top of that, it gives you the skills um, from hand-to-hand blade work all the way to pistol rifle, basic marksmanship from experts. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, here we are in this, you know, quote unquote pandemic and this virus. And we know that anytime there's a virus, it's the direct cause, but it's the indirect effect. The indirect effect is the economy, right? Right. The economy takes a big nosedive and, you know, supply chain issues. All this stuff was very predictable because, like I said, with my company, Escape the Wolf, we were doing pandemic plans before pandemic was cool. Um, and so my my guys that work for me were the pandemic plan- planners for DHS and the White House and stuff like that uh, long before uh, coronavirus came along. So anyway, I had saw, I kind of saw this, right? I saw that, wait, you know, I'm giving people how to survive seconds, minutes, days, right? But I haven't given them just like, not survival, just how to thrive on their own because in itself, it isolates you and insulates you from all this catastrophe and crisis, right? The more things you do for yourself, the less the outside world can affect you. Mm -hmm. And so that was the major goal of the book was give everybody the ultimate backup plan. Give everybody options. It's okay if you want to pay electric bill on the grid, but make sure you've got a secondary power grid for yourself, right? It's okay to go buy your meat and vegetables from a grocery store, Mm -hmm. but make sure you have a secondary plan for resourcing meat and vegetables. So I felt like no one had a backup plan, right? Right. You know, especially when toilet paper was like the crisis. That really said everything that I needed to know in order to put the rugged life together. So just think of that book of, it's just a book of options, a book of backup plans. And if you want to make some of those plans in the book, your primary, by all means do it because then nobody can affect you. You insulate yourself from crisis when you do these things for yourself. And that's, that's the, that's the biggest takeaway and the reason why I put it together. And by the way, once again, I didn't know all that stuff. I went around right. to people who are living on grid, off grid, mm-hmm. and some that are kind of like a hybrid and said, what are, what are the things you, you're glad you're doing for yourself and that you feel like are most beneficial? And that created over 100 skills in the rugged life that anyone can now get off their couch once again and go do it right now. Well, the thing, Clint, that I found that was important is during the pandemic, whoops, I mean pandemic, uh, we were kind of like, you know, uh, that was where a lot of these seeds were planted. And then reading a book like The Rugged Life kind of, you know, it elevated my sense of awareness about the things that I don't know in terms of what would happen if this were no longer available. But this is something that literally has just been on my mind since last night. And it goes right into what you were saying about food being available. So last night I see a video in Kansas of 10,000 head of cattle that all died at the same time. 
And they're claiming it's because of the heat wave, the heat index being up and humidity and all that. And a week or two ago, 3,000 head of cattle died in Missouri. Again, they're saying it's because of the heat wave. Now, ignoring the fact that cattle live in South Texas and Arizona and New Mexico, and they're not dropping like flies, and we don't usually see mass casualty events for cattle because of heat, it's worrisome to me. And then Abbott, which is the the baby formula place out in Michigan that you know we had all the problems with, it was only online for 11 days. And then today it just broke, news broke, that there was a flood. They're having to shut down the factory again. And then we're all, we're all, we all know now that Bill Gates owns more farmland in America than anybody. And he's producing all the elements to create, you know, unbelievable meat or whatever they're calling it, fake meat. And he's also very, very big about getting rid of meat consumption in this country. So I'm not saying all that to scare anybody to be like, ah, you know, there's an impending doom coming, but talk to any executive or listen to any executive in a food production industry in the last two years magically there's entire farms full of chickens that have died. There's entire facilities that have burned down or flooded to where they had to get rid of all the food. So I say all that to say, to not say to put on your, you know, tinfoil hat, but just like, let's say there is a nefarious force out there that's affecting the food supply. The way that affects you is your ability to eat your ability to give your wife or your husband or your children food. So it's more about keeping your head on a swivel. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And I hadn't heard about all that stuff going on. Um, but it certainly backs the back gives good reason, uh, for everyone to have their backup plans or contingency plans figured out ahead of time, you know, because I think we just take it for granted that every time you go to the grocery store, there's going to be what you want sitting on the shelf. And that's just not the case. It's starting to prove true for the first time in history, you know, and, since the last time this all happened, you know, it was basically the Great Depression when, you know, our grandparents, my grandparents, I always wonder, why does grandpa always got them? nothing but drawers and drawers of batteries around here? Like every fucking drawer had Radio Shack batteries in them, you know, and it was because that's how they were raised. Like you got to have like all your backups figured out. I mean, they were jarring their vegetables. They had, you know, a deep freezer full of meat and they were always kind of like stocking up on things and being very conservative on what they used and how they used it, right? And I think we've lost that because we've become a society of convenience and uh, we can have things delivered to our front door using mm-hmm. these magic little apps. And, you know, that's all great. And I'm not saying not don't use it. I'm just saying, hey, just make sure you, you know, you've got a plan when, when some of that stuff doesn't work out. Right. We, we've gotten very, very fat and happy. And so that's why a book like The Rugged Life is so important. But yeah. I want to ask you about a quote that's right on the, the inside cover of this, because you have several quotes from from Emerson and from, you know, other smart people that, uh, you know, I, I'm not smart enough to read their work. But there was something in this quote that kind of caught me askew. And so I want to ask you about it. So here's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. It is easy to see that a greater self-reliance must work a revolution in all the offices and relations of men in their religion in their education, in their pursuits, their modes of living, their association, in their property, in their speculative views. So that was the first page of the book that I read, and I underlined the word religion. 
Uh, because when I was on your show, which I, I enjoyed the heck out of that, I love talking w- with guys like you that obviously come from a different worldview. Um, you know, you took a few lighthearted shots at me, called me a Bible thumper, which I thought was hilarious. And, you know, but you and I had a very cordial conversation. It's very similar to a conversation that I had with Mike Ritland, you know, over three hours last year on his show, which by the way, just to go back to the beginning, if you guys want to know a little bit more about some of the stuff that Clint did for the federal government, you just had an appearance on Mike Ritland's show, Mike Drop, here like a month ago or something like that. It was fantastic fantastic. You go into a lot more detail. So I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes. But the word religion being included here, again, it's not your quote, it's it's Emerson's quote, caught me off guard because I, I get the not so subtle sense that you don't have a Judeo-Christian worldview, that you don't have a, a godly worldview. Maybe you're somewhere between agnostic and atheist. And you just kind of filled in a few of the blanks earlier talking about your upbringing in Saudi Arabia, seeing, you know, kind of this religious uh, setup and Sharia law, and you're kind of around a lot of these things, and it kind of maybe jaded your viewpoint. But I don't want to presume anything and categorize you incorrectly. So, where would you say that you land on all of that stuff, categorically, religion or spiritualism or whatever air quote thing you want to call it? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you can. That's that's what's great about you is we can kind of have fun with it, you know, with the Bible thumper stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, I, you know, growing up in Saudi certainly put a bad taste in my mouth as it relates to religion holistically, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at wars fought, you know, it's either got a real estate foundation or a religion foundation to it. Sure. And it's, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, the pinnacle of any SEAL's career is war, right? The last thing sure. you want to do is train for 20 years and never get to pull the trigger. You know, that's just right. that suck. And there's a lot of SEALs that had to endure that, and I feel for them. But, um, you know, for us, it's going going to war. And, you know, and when you look at these wars, it's either religion or real estate. And so it makes you wonder, like, what the fuck is going on with this planet, right? Yeah. Um, I think religion is great when it's the you know used in the right way um i feel like like my daughter for example goes to church with her mom and i'm all for it because i know that there is there is safety there i know that good moral and ethic foundation is always going to be you know placed inside the a, a church's education system and so i support all that i really do mm-hmm. i just never found myself um you know, fallen in love with it. I tried. I had a mother-in-law that, boy, would she, uh, would she try? <laughs> and I would go to church and I'd stand there and, I, you know, and people are speaking in tongues. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I just, I'm just not feeling this when the people on the front row are, you know, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? You know, that's, <laughs> so it was a little, I've had extreme versions of religion, you know, put yeah. in my life and uh, it's hard to kind of see the light um, to a certain degree. Yeah. I have nothing against it though, by any means. I feel like for the most part, it, it puts people uh, in a good place. It puts people, it gives people their left and right flanks as they, as they, you know, travel through life. Um, I just personally haven't, you know, uh, been, uh, let's see, overwhelmed by it or got the feeling or, you know, that that moment when uh, faith kicks in because something happened in your life. None none of that stuff's ever happened to, to, to turn the religious switch on for Clint. 
<laughs> that that lightning bolt moment. And I know we're running up against time, but I did want to kind yeah. of do a few follow-ups if, if you're okay with that. So yeah, yeah. Um, you're using a word that I also have a problem with, which is religion. Because there are a lot of religious people out there that aren't even following the reli- the dictates of the religion they su- purport to follow, right? So it's like, if you have read the Quran, if you understand the Quran, if you understand the ninth surah, which is the bloodiest and least abrogated of all the surahs, then you would look at what would be called a moderate Muslim and say, well, you're not acting like a Muslim. Cause if you go back to your magic book, here are the things that you're supposed to be doing. And you saw that firsthand uh, in war and growing up in Saudi. So we don't need to go into too much uh, a detail with that. The one thing that I would throw out there to you, and this is a problem within the Christian community as well, is this, this reliance on feeling. So I don't know if you ever went to church camp as a kid or all that. I didn't grow up in church. And so it's like, I didn't really have those experiences until I was a little bit older, but you get this feeling, right? It's when they sing the chorus of that one Christian worship song for the 14th time. And you really feel it this time. And the tears start coming and the preacher was really funny. And then he flipped the switch on you and said, there's a bunch of volcanoes and there's a bunch of earthquakes. And that means Jesus is coming back. And you're like, Oh no, I don't want to go to hell. And you have this emotional feeling. The problem with depending upon that emotion is the same thing we talked about earlier, which is depending on passion or motivation. It comes down to discipline and reality. Because here's the thing, Clint, Christianity is either true or it's not. It's not both, right? Jesus Christ was a real person that lived in history or he wasn't. He was literally a Middle Eastern Jew that died at the behest of the Jews on a Roman cross or he wasn't. And also he was either resurrected on the third day or he wasn't. There is no in between. There is no gray area. There's no your truth. There's no my truth. And so I guess a question I would have for you is if Christianity were true, would you believe it? If it were true? If it were true, would you believe it? Uh, I mean, well, then that's easy because if it's something that's true and it truly has a tangible background, then sure. I mean, what, what I, you know, I don't know if we got into it, but when you have some, any of, any of these religious books, you know, mm-hmm. were for the most part written decades, if not centuries after the fact, and and most of the stories were told by, you know, 40, 60 plus people that make up that one book. And you compare that to today's communication capability where we are very advanced and we have the ability to accurately convey information, right? Supposedly. Right. And even with today's technology and and communication at the speed of light, that information still gets exaggerated whether it's the right or the left or just the media playing games and doing what they do. So it's very hard for me to go, all right, something that was written that far back, written that long after an event, how accurate is the information? And, and you get the feeling from my point of view and how I've always looked at it from the outside is men or people as a society just needed rules. And um, you know, and religion kind of gives them, like I said, that right and left flank. So I can't really, I don't knock it. I just, I just don't see it the same as everyone else. No, I, I completely, and here's the thing that that's why I like, you know, now talking to you about this, but talking to Mike and talking to other people that are in this area to where it's like, okay, you seemingly from an outsider's perspective, you seem to be, try to be intellectually honest. You're trying to be intellectually consistent. You're trying to do those things. And you don't currently have a rubric where something like Christianity, for instance, fits into that, right? But the one thing I would tell you in this, I told Mike the same thing, is you're asking a lot of questions, and even the ones you didn't verbalize, that have answers. 
that for thousands of years, people have been asking these same questions, but the answers are knowable. But the reason why I asked, you know, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? Because there are people that are so white knuckle about their atheism that even if they had every single one of their questions answered, they would still not believe like, because they just can't, they have no capability for it. So uh, that's why I was kind of asking that question because a lot of the questions you're asking Clint, there are answers too, and not philosophical answers. There are archeological answers. There are historical answers because again, what's written down in the Holy scriptures, Holy scriptures, they either happened or they didn't. It's the same thing like there, but then there are some things in the Bible, for instance, that is poetry or allegory. Not everything is meant to be taken literally. And so I guess uh, to, to even wrap up, maybe this would be the last question of the day. Are you even open to getting some of those questions answered or is it a subject matter that you're so disinterested in that you could give a care less? Uh, I've been open. Like I said, I, I, I literally would go to church and try to, uh, try to, get there, you know, to yeah, that point. Right. Um, and, you know, I tell people all the time, well, it just didn't work on me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you didn't get, you didn't get a heavy enough dose of whatever <laughs> it is that they were yeah. serving that day. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just somebody needed to be a little more evangelical or yeah, I can't even say that word. It uh, doesn't even I matter. It every time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yes. I did a better, I needed a better salesperson. Maybe I needed you. Who knows? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Well, see, the funny thing about that is like when you get into these discussions with people again, you know, establish that truth is truth and there's not yeah. your truth and my truth, but it comes down to a comparison to where it's like, okay, uh, let's say I'm talking to an atheist and they're convinced of it and I'm a Christian and I'm convinced of it. Let's say he's right and I'm wrong. We both get to the end of our life. I will have wasted a lot of time, energy, and money trying to convert people to something that's not true, but we both have the same outcome. We're worm food, right? But if he's wrong and I'm right, eternity's at stake. And so that's why I tell people, I was like, you don't have to come to church with me. You don't have to figure things out the way that I figured it out. You don't have to go and search for that feeling. You just need to discover the answers. You need to have your questions answered because it's way more important than your next fantasy football draft. It's way more important than the next podcast you want to listen to or next Netflix series that you're going to binge is knowing the answers to that so you can at least have some foundation for your belief system. But I do appreciate you letting us get into that topic and really into everything. And we're already over time. I've made you late for the next next thing. Don't tell your assistant that it was my fault. Tell him it was your fault. You can have the Mia Copa. But as for now, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, it's all good, man. Love, love the conversation. Great discussion. I appreciate all the more, uh, more detailed questions than I usually get. So I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, good. Clint Emerson, thank you for coming on a Daunted Life, a man's podcast. No, thanks for having me, buddy. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed Clinton Emerson's appearance on the show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. I've got a lot of links for you today. I've got a link to Clint's website. I've got a link to the company that he talked about from the top, which is Escape the Wolf. I got a link to the new book, The Rugged Life. And also, I've got a link to my appearance on Clint's podcast last year. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. 
keep seeking the Lion of Judah.